Well, coming up next, it is such an honor to present to you Dr. Michael Sala. Now, Dr. Sala has a PhD in political science in international politics and peace and conflict resolution. He's taught at American University and he had quite an experience there after seeing Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project in 2001. That really set off an awakening inside Michael and he decided that he needed to change paths and devote his time and his energies in exposing the reality of the extraterrestrial presence and he began to do that very work. Unfortunately, in our conventional educational institutions, uh, such pioneering work is not always welcomed and Michael did not have his, uh, his teaching contract renewed after he was published in the Washington Post for a wonderful article about Eisenhower and his encounter and meeting with extraterrestrials. The university said, we're sorry, we just can't let our professors be involved in this kind of material. And this is something so many researchers have come up against, the many barriers in conventional thinking. But Michael was not dissuaded by this. He continued to pursue this interest, this passion, and to bring forth the truth of information to the people, going mainstream in many different ways, but most recently writing articles for the online newspaper, TheExaminer.com, where he has had over a million people read his articles about the reality of the extraterrestrial presence. Now, bringing in his skills of peace and conflict resolution and his background in international politics and blending that with the research involved, the in-depth study of the extraterrestrial activity taking place on planet Earth has led him to some remarkable discoveries. His book, Exopolitics, which was published in 19, or I'm sorry, in 2005. 2005? Exopolitics? Okay. Is uh, defined, defined a new field. And, uh, and now Michael has expanded his research in many different directions with consciousness, uh, with healing, with celestials. And today he will be presenting to you about the role of the celestials on planet Earth with this transformative process. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so proud to give to you such a pioneering individual, such an inspired spirit, Dr. Michael Sala. You are listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. <laughs> well, it's really wonderful to be able to come here and talk about a topic that um, many years ago when I got involved in this field, I just couldn't imagine myself talking about this. Um, my original interest, I mean, I've always been fascinated by extraterrestrials, childhood, and just being 
fascinated by that whole topic. And then in my in 1984, I got involved in um, you know, philosophy, Indian philosophy, Buddhism, Tibetan uh, philosophies, all of those things that many of you here have experienced. And so I was very fascinated with the whole idea of ascended masters, the Theosophical Society, Parahansa Yogananda, that whole tradition. And, uh, and so I got very involved in that and began a very intense meditation practice and did it for years and years. And so I became very familiar with that field. But then I was guided, uh, as many of us are, into a more conventional career and that's what I did. I got involved in peace and conflict resolution and worked in that area for a number of years. And then um, in 2001, as Angelica said, I got uh, really switched on, I think. I think there was some button in me that just, you know, 2001, that disclosure project, press conference, the whole kind of extraterrestrial phenomenon being broadcast out to the world as something that was being covered up, that was very real. It just kind of hit the button and it was like, I just kind of, kind of like looking at these orange crocs here, kind of like, whoop. It's, uh, it was something that just kind of like really woke me up. It was like, wow, there's something happening here that's really profound and affects international politics, it affects my career, and I was really excited about it and got involved in finding out as much as I could and thinking that the university would be open to it. And as Angelica said, they're not as open to innovative knowledge as I thought. I'm pretty naive, really, at the time. Naive about a lot of things back in 2001 thought that government kind of told the truth most of the time. Now I, now I know much better. Um, but what I'm going to be doing today is going beyond the extraterrestrial phenomenon as, as I've been writing about and um, uh, really teaching uh, for the last eight years, nine years now. Um, and, it, and it's really looking at this other layer, this additional layer to the extraterrestrial phenomenon. That's why I'm, I'm really excited about the presentation today because I'm going to be bringing together the things that I have been very interested in for, for many, many years from the time I was very involved in um, Hinduism, Buddhism, the, the, the whole kind of esoteric literature, the whole ascended master literature, and kind of like put that in the back door because it was like, well, you know, how do I talk about this if I'm teaching international politics to graduate students at American University in Washington, D.C.? Kind of like it was like, you can't talk about that. You'll be you know, locked up. Um, as it turns out, you know, talking about extraterrestrials with whistleblowers coming out, um, these, these are people who have had experience um, in various military um, uh, services or, or aviation industry or corporations, and they're talking about extraterrestrial life and cover-up, and even talking about that when there are so many really credible people with corporate, military, uh, academic experience who are saying that this is real, it's being covered up. And, to, and if that is being discredited, you can imagine talking about ascended masters and kind of celestial realms and all of that. It just kind of like it wasn't something that was a wise, wise thing to talk about. Uh, but now I'm feeling as though this is the time to start talking about this additional level because we've reached that point where I think disclosure is imminent. It really is very, very close. We are going to wake up one day and we are going to live on a planet where everyone is aware of an extraterrestrial presence that is being covered up by the government, whether or not the government announces it. But we'll talk about that. So the first thing is 
who are the celestials? Well, we find that in the historical records, there are many references to these beings who are seen in association with extraterrestrials. And you can see there some of the artwork that has often featured uh, some re primary religious pioneers with, in the context of extraterrestrials or, or, or UFOs. Okay, so there you see uh, the, the, the UFO there uh, and the celestial figures above it in the church. So this has been something that there have been various references to these beings, these celestial beings known in the religious traditions as, as elevated souls um, in relationship to the flying, flying sources or the UFO phenomenon. Now the thing is that these celestials, these beings that, are, that we come across in the religious tra uh, traditions, they're described as being free of any kind of technology. They, they travel around by the speed of thought, uh, by higher consciousness. They don't use technology. So these beings have been described in various ways. Uh, angels, ascended masters, Elohim. And they, the many terms that I'm sure many of you are aware of, and they describe the whole category of beings that exist out there doing amazing things just through the power of consciousness, through the power of will, through will alone, through spiritual force. And, and this is something that is many people have spoken about experiences where they encounter these beings at various periods in their lives. Um, periods where uh, things may be difficult or a challenge or a new path is opening up for them. You know, one of these beings suddenly pops in, does something and pops out. You know, like for example, uh, the American um, Constitution. I mean, the, the founding fathers uh, were all together and they apparently were, had reached a log jam in their deliberations about what was going to be necessary for this document that would become the Constitution of the United States. And some mysterious person just kind of came along, had incredible knowledge about the details, the minutiae, the, the personalities, and got them all to agree. And, and they all agreed, and they kind of said, okay, let's go ahead and sign on that. By the way, who was that guy? I, I don't know. I thought you knew him. No, okay. Who, who was he? No one knew. He just kind of came along, helped them reach agreement, and then he was gone. And, then, and we so find this again and again in various traditions, that there are these beings that come in at pivotal points in human history and just act as advisors, help things move forward in ways that otherwise wouldn't happen if, the, if they didn't intervene. They, they are masters of space-time. They can travel throughout the universe just through the power of consciousness alone. So they're not confined to any one physical location. And so they, that really makes them very different to the extraterrestrials that many people come across in the literature. Uh, many people who have had experiences with extraterrestrials and they're being taken up on their ships uh, willingly, unwillingly. Um, they're talking about beings that travel through space-time in kind of advanced technology. We know that. Uh, but these beings, these celestials, don't do that, uh, which makes them very different. And, and it means that they're able to utilize in abilities that are inherent that, that we are you know, scarcely familiar with. I mean, we're hardly familiar with it. I mean, we know we only use about 10 to 12 percent of the brain and 
and certainly in terms of our whole chakra system, the energy system of the body, uh, we use only a minute fraction of that. And some of us are able to use a little bit more, maybe 15%, and, we be, and they become geniuses, people who are, uh, are really revered by others. But, but essentially, these beings that are able to utilize space-time are able to um, use all of the energies that are inherent in the human body um, to, in ways that are far beyond our capabilities. Now, I, I said 12% of the brain or our abilities are what we kind of use. Um, a genius might be 15%. Well, you know, there, there are those that are kind of masters of wisdom, and, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, who are actually, uh, who have been seen with the extraterrestrials themselves, and they speak of, of being able to tap into, say, 35%. And, and they're able to tap into 35% of their inherent abilities, and they become these cosmic beings that are revered by galactic civilizations. Uh, so it shows just how, how much potential exists within the physical body to be able to master these inherent abilities. And it doesn't seem to be something that is just peculiar to, to humans. I mean, it exists throughout all civilizations, that the, the, these abilities. Because I think ultimately... Um, any civilization in any world uh, reveres those beings that are able to utilize their inherent potential. So it doesn't really matter what race you're from, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. What is, it, what is the common denominator in these celestials, in writing about them? What, what is it that they all share in common that makes them unique? And, and the thing that kind of really stood out for me is this profound unity consciousness. Uh, one of the things that really impressed me about the Ra material, and I'm really ha very happy to have heard Carla Rukert speak to us on Friday about the Ra material. And those of you who have read the books know just how that material emphasizes this whole idea of unity consciousness. Uh, being able to achieve high degrees of unity consciousness uh, allows one to rise through the different densities, through the different dimensions. And I think that's that's pretty close to the truth. In fact, I think that is the truth, that the more we become identified with the oneness of all that is, I mean, Dennis Adams last night was talking about space, that, you know, that there's this space that pervades all that is, that there really is no difference between us, um, that the more we identify with that oneness of all that is, uh, the more we really become cosmic beings and the more we are able to utilize these inherent potentials. And the thing is, as you become more identified with those inherent potentials within you, then uh, you don't belong anymore to one civilization or to, to one culture, to one uh, dimension even, that you can actually truly become a cosmic being. And I think this is one of the things that we see with these celestials, that they truly are cosmic beings. They don't play favorites. Even if they may come from a particular culture, they don't play favorites. They, they really are there to promote universal will, cosmic consciousness, unity consciousness, and those are the things that, uh, that they really emphasize. And if, and if a culture, if a people are in alignment with that, they will help promote that as, as best they can. And this is really what I think distinguishes celestials from extraterrestrials, that the state of consciousness that, that of the celestials is, is something that is very elevated beyond space-time considerations, whereas with the extraterrestrials and those that have done communications with them will we'll know that this is, this is how they identify themselves. 
most commonly with, with the star system. So the Pleiadians, of course, from the Pleiades star system, Sirius from the Sirius star system, and so on. You get, you get all these different star cultures and, 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 and people ask, communicate with them, say, where are you from? And they're told the location because that is what you, uh, that's what we resonate with and that's something that they can identify with as well. Um, but celestials are beyond that. One of the things that I just want to emphasize again is that the celestials really are, really see themselves as being in service to universal will. Um, being of service to all that is. Um, and and that, that universal will is something that they are in a journey of discovery. It's not as though it's clear cut, this is universal will, this is what we do, and, and, and that's it. It's like, it's, uh, it's something that you have to discover in the process of serving it. And, and that's kind of pretty, pretty difficult. I mean, yeah, all of us, I'm sure, at some point uh, encounter difficulties in our path, and we know that there's a higher will, or we hope that there's a higher will guiding us, and we want to be of service to that. But it's not always clear, and I think the important thing is that this is something that is universal. It's not just us in limited physical bodies suffering delusions of limitation and scarcity, all those things that suffer from this, but it's also more elevated beings that are also in this process of discovery. Um, many of the extraterrestrial races that we would consider to be more spiritual, if you ask them, uh, what is universal will, they'll say pretty much that same thing, that, well, it's a process of discovery. You can never be 100% clear what universal will is. You discover it as you, as you dedicate yourself to service to it. So the celestials are described as basically intervening to help us evolve so that we become a civilization which is more in alignment with universal will, uh, more in alignment with being of service to to all, and of helping us uh, free ourselves from, from limitation. And that becomes quite a problem when you have the infusion of extraterrestrial civilizations into a human, human culture. And if you think about that, there's going to be conflict. Because you, you, you like, I mean, Hawaii. I mean, you, you had Captain Cook, and you had the missionaries, and then you had the American military coming over here, and within a very short time, what happens? This beautiful indigenous culture suddenly finds itself being annexed by a, 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 a more militarily advanced culture. I mean, that was one of the, one of the things that the, uh, the Hawaiian queen at the time um, had to decide, well, you know, would you kind of fight against these white colonials that basically did this illegal coup? They were backed by the, uh, by the American Navy that was in port at the time. Um, it was like, well, we, we can't fight this. Look at, the, look at their weapons. We can't fight against them. So it was submission. Well, I mean, this is the thing. You, when you ever have an infusion of advanced technologies and a people with them into a, a more primitive culture, you're going to have conflict over how much of that technology should be introduced, how is it going to be used in terms of settling political conflict, um, and, and is it going to be something that uh, leads to a takeover? Um, so this is something that also pertains to extraterrestrial life. When they come, when they see our society reach a certain point of maturation, when we're ready for contact, what does that mean in terms of their advanced technologies? And, and, and what does that mean for these beings, celestials, that are watching all of this, watching and helping us evolve to be of greater service to universal will, 
Uh, what does all that mean? It means, in many cases, uh, that they work in collaboration with some of these extraterrestrials. And, and this has actually been confirmed by a number of contactees who see the extraterrestrials with some of these celestials. And I'll, and I'll be talking about that. And the contactees refer to these ascended ones or these celestials as masters of wisdom, uh, universal messengers, angels, uh, kind of similar terms to what we would use. So that's kind of like uh, pretty important to understand that uh, the extraterrestrials, no matter how technologically advanced they are, they themselves are in awe of these beings who can travel through space-time through, through the power of consciousness itself. And that's very important to remember because sometimes we think about extraterrestrials having all of the cards, you know, all of the big cards. You've got, the, you've got these incredible technologies. They can go, go through space-time whenever they want. They can kind of like monitor us without us being aware of it. Um, but the thing is they have these advanced technologies to be able to do that. And it seems that uh, that is both a blessing uh, but also a limitation for them. And they understand that, which is why they revere these ascended ones, masters of wisdoms or celestials that they come into contact with and, and they collaborate. So what I'm going to do is give you some historic examples of celestials interacting with extraterrestrials and with humanity. That there's a three-way interaction happening here. And it's not always pretty. So I'm going to talk about some of these examples. Probably one of the, the most um, graphic ones is the, the Book of Enoch. I'm sure mo many of you have heard of it. Um, and, and that shows a really complex relationship between extraterrestrials, celestials, and humanity. Basically, the Book of Enoch describes a group of 200 entities. They're called the Nephilim. Um, uh, or fallen angels, the watchers. Um, in the Sumerian, they're called the Anunnaki, those who from the heavens came. Um, sometimes it, you know, the Nephilim is confused to be the giants, but there's an actual different word for, for giant in the, uh, in, in the ancient Hebrew. Hebrew. So uh, the Nephilim describes these beings that come here and basically see the, the, the females, attractive females on the planet, and, and begin to interbreed with them. And these are powerful beings. And basically, they produce a new, a new civilization or a new culture or a new breed. And, and this new breed are basically giants. Um, and so the, the Book of Enoch describes this, uh, how they, they came here and they, they began to mate with um, human females. And so let me read a passage from the Book of Enoch. And it came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget children. And Semyasa, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. So they, the, the, these beings, these fallen angels, Nephilim, were aware that somehow in coming to earth and interbreeding with females, that there was some kind of transgression of universal law happening. And the leader, Semyase, was kind of concerned that, well, if I do this, are you going to be with me? Are we all in or, or not? Because if I do it, then 
I, I want to make sure I have some backup here. Um, and, and, that's, and that's what happens. The, the other 200 fallen angels uh, said, yeah, we'll, we're with you. We're all, all the way. We're going to go down there and, and we're going to start that mating process, whatever, whatever they had. <laughs> and they all answered him and said, let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. They swore, they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all 200 who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. So this is a really interesting passage. Basically you're hearing in the, this is an apocryphal book from the Old Testament. Um, it was used in the time of Jesus. Uh, as a standard for, for, for Hebrew learning. Uh, but somehow it wasn't included in the canon of, of, of the Christian traditions. And it was only a few uh, Orthodox faiths that had it. Uh, one was, I believe, the Ethiopian church, and, and I think one was uh, the Slavic church. They, they incorporated the Book of Enoch into their traditions. Uh, and you can understand why the church didn't want this to be kind of disseminated, because... Here, you couldn't pin the blame on, you know, on Eve, right? It wasn't Eve and the fallen apple that caused all the problems. It was these 200 fallen angels, watchers, extraterrestrials. I think they're basically extraterrestrials, and I'll, and I'll actually explain why they're extraterrestrials rather than angels. But they're really extraterrestrials, advanced extraterrestrials. They came here and began the strife. Now, there are those that don't want this to be known and, and pin the blame on Basically, man following the temptation of Eve, eating from the forbidden tree. But, but actually, the book of Enoch paints a very different picture of what it is that actually led to that initial transgression. And, it, and it, as uh, Semyase here was actually acknowledging that there was a great sin being performed because there was, there was being a corruption of whatever was occurring on, on earth at the time. So... What are these beings? They're described as angels in the book of Enoch, but they're not really angels, even though many consider them fallen angels. They're not fallen angels. They're extraterrestrials. Um, and how do we know that? Well, they, the, the extraterrestrials, the Nephilim, the Anunnaki, the Sumerian tradition, where it's quite clear that these are extraterrestrials because they travel around in, in technology, in flying ships, in rocket ships. Uh, that's how they're described in the Anunnaki, in, uh, sorry, in the Sumerian traditions, as extraterrestrials in, in rocket ships. In the Book of Enoch, uh, that doesn't quite uh, give that kind of detail because the Book of Enoch is based on the ancient Sumerian traditions, as is all of the, the Hebrew uh, uh, canon. Much of it is, comes from that. Um, but we see in the Book of Enoch that these fallen ones, the Nephilim, teach humanity or give humanity advanced technology. And this was a sin, we'll see that, or something that would lead to corruption. Now let me read the next passage. And Azazel taught men to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth and the art of working them. Barakel taught astrology, Hokabel, the constellations, Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Clouds, well... Flying sources. Arakil, the signs of the earth. Shamsel, the signs of the sun. And Sariel, the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried and their cry went up to heaven. So basically what's happening here? 
you have the, the Nephilim teaching humanity at the time what we would consider to be advanced knowledge. You know, some of it is war making, but other parts are like astronomy, uh, being able to tell the weather, the, the signs, uh, timekeeping, all of those sorts of things we would consider to be signs of civilization. But yet, this was something that uh, ultimately led to a conflict, great conflict. Um, and, and it's because this technology was given to a people that were not yet prepared or not spiritually mature. It's kind of like giving matches to a two-year-old. I mean, you're, you're, you can imagine what's going to happen when you do something like that. Well, apparently, the civilization at the time uh, wasn't quite ready for this kind of, not, uh, this kind of technology. Um, and war broke out. And there was a lot of war, a lot of conflict. And this is something... That's the passage I just read out. So there was a lot, of a lot of conflict as this technology was disseminated. So what's happening now with the Celestials? So this is the way the Book of Enoch describes it. And, and I don't think the Book of Enoch is 100% accurate in framing this uh, because I think, obviously, it comes through a particular filter that was common to uh, the, the Hebrews of that time uh, when the Book of Enoch was written. But still, I think it gives you a sense of the flavor of the conflict that, that occurred between these different beings. On the one hand, there were the Nephilim, who knew consciously that they were doing things that uh, would, would get them into trouble. And uh, this other group that uh, I'll describe as Celestials, serving universal will. So let me describe, I'll read that out. And then Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel looked down from the heaven and saw much blood being shed upon the earth and all lawlessness being wrought upon the earth. And they said to the Lord of the ages, Thou seest what Azazel hath done, who hath taught all unrighteousness on earth and revealed the eternal secrets which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn. So there's some reference here to secrets that men are striving to learn but are preserved. Why would you preserve secrets? Well, you keep secrets from people who aren't ready. Uh, and certainly we wouldn't give advanced technology uh, to people who aren't ready. I mean, we wouldn't give uh, the knowledge of creating fusion bombs to peoples or, 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 or countries that, in, uh, that we would consider to be uh, not ready. That's part of, the that's part of uh, international law at the moment, uh, the International Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's understood that you do not give advanced destructive weapons. Uh, you don't allow that to just proliferate because ultimately it'll end up in the hands of those who aren't ready and it'll be used. And so it, the Book of Enoch continues. And Semyase, to whom thou hast given authority to bear rule over his associates, and they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth and have slept with the women and, and have defiled themselves and revealed to them all kinds of sins and the women have borne giants, and, and the whole earth has therefore been filled with blood and unrighteousness. So there's some sort of interbreeding that is happening here that leads to the creation of a new race. Or really, uh, rather than a new race, I think what was the real problem here was that it was a, a elites, a new group of elites, that the extraterrestrials who interbred with the humans uh, basically created a new elite class who became the rulers. And that this was something that was not favored upon, something that the Celestials saw as, very being, as being to the interest of humanity. And so you kind of get 
snippets of this in the, uh, in the biblical traditions as well. Because basically what happened was that there was a highly unjust, violent society that was, de was de developed uh, by the Nephilim. And, and this, was, this was during a time of open conflict between different extraterrestrial groups. It comes out more clearly in the Sumerian traditions where uh, Zechariah Sitchin, for those of you who are familiar with him, he's written about the, uh, the, the wars between the Anunnaki, different factions of the Anunnaki fighting each other. So there were these factional wars between these, these same extraterrestrials that gave out this advanced technology to humanity. So, you know, you think about it. What's the logic here? You give this advanced technology to humanity, you're part of this extraterrestrial group or civilization. You give that to humanity, and then you start fighting amongst yourselves. Well, you know, you think of logically what's that going to, what's going to result from that? Well, it means that uh, there's going to be a lot of destruction amongst humanity themselves. There's going to be a lot of conflict as you have different dynasties rivaling for, uh, for power and control. And so I think you kind of get a little bit of that in, in some of the uh, traditions from the, um, from, from, the old, from the Old Testament, such as the story of David and Goliath. You know, why, why is David the guy with the stone, so very primitive technology, and Goliath has the weapons? Because Goliath is part of the elite, part of the ruling class. These are the guys with the, technol with the technology. This is the new, the ruling class, these giants, say. And David represents humans, or ordinary humans, that don't have this kind of advanced technology. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've found in my own research was that technology in the ancient world was not as suffused as it is now. And, and as I'll talk, talk later, there actually is a lot of technology which is being kept secret from us. Um, yesterday, Sterling Allen talked about a lot of these advanced technologies. Alex Collier talked about some of the technologies that are deliberately being kept from us. And that's very, very true. A lot's being kept. It leads to an implosion of the society or of the civilization established by the Nephilim. So whereas the extraterrestrials are depicted as teachers of advanced technologies, they basically give technology to humanity and watch it take off and then watch as humanity begins to fight and the extraterrestrials themselves fight amongst themselves. Whereas celestials are seen to be instruments of universal will, having a kind of very different way of understanding how society, human society, is to develop. In giving these advanced technologies to uh, humanity, the extraterrestrials have basically fermented a lot of uh, devastating warfare, and, and that has led to this appeal, uh, as the Book of Enoch describes it, to appeal to heaven for support. So the Book of Enoch then describes the conflict that occurs between the Nephilim and a group of, of righteous angel, uh, the group of righteous angelic ent entities, or the celestials. And, and just to kind of remind you that uh, there was actually a lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence that nuclear warfare was not something that has occurred on this planet only in the last century. There's a lot of evidence that nuclear warfare occurred in ancient India, that occurred in the Sinai, and that certain events described in the, uh, in the um, religious tradition actually refer to nuclear war. Um, and I'll mention that in a, in a moment. I'll give some examples in a moment. But nuclear war did happen in the ancient world. There's a lot of evidence supporting that in terms of historical texts describing this, and also 
radioactive uh, sites or radioactivity found in these very ancient areas. So what are the lessons from the Book of Enoch? It's basically saying that there was an imbalance between humanity's level of technological sophistication and higher states of consciousness. There was something out of alignment. Celestials appear as the ultimate protectors of a humanity that is easily led astray by extraterrestrials with advanced technologies. And there you see a scene from uh, Lot being escorted by the angels from Sodom. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened there? I mean, the Old Testament describes these cities being destroyed in a blinding flash where you know, Lot's wife turned around and um, got turned into a pillar of stone, well, a, a pillar of salt. Well, you know, I think that's kind of metaphor. I don't think that's exactly what happened. But I think there's enough truth there in terms of roughly what happened. And, and the, the reference to Lot being warned by two angels and being led out of Sodom by these uh, angels. And here you have uh, Lot being led by the two angels here. Lot and his family being led out. And that's just showing that uh, the, the angelics or the celestials actually help humans at a time where this kind of advanced technology gets out of hand. Uh, we find the same sort of thing happening in Vedic India and the Mahabharata. In the, book, in the book of Enoch, that describes a situation where civilization, where celestials intervene. And again, they do it to uh, basically uh, end a corrupt civilization by powerful elites that are using these advanced technologies. And, and here you have um, a scene with uh, Krishna advising uh, Arjuna, the, the Hindu prince, and, and Krishna showing his uh, multidimensional form. Um, and so here is a being that we could describe as a celestial because it's someone that has these abilities that transcend space-time. And, and the chief mode of intervention by the celestials was an open conflict. I mean, in, in, the, in the Mahabharata, Krishna didn't fight. He just advised uh, Arjuna. And he actually gave his army to the other side because he knew that the other side uh, valued technology and military strength. You know. uh, but Krishna understood that there were more important things that needed to be kept in mind in terms of what it is that uh, allowed a civilization to um, continue, to flourish, and what, led, what would lead to the unraveling or the end of an age. And so this is what uh, Krishna did. He advised uh, Arjuna um, in ways that led to the moral precepts of the time for fighting, war fighting in Vedic India, to, to basically be overlooked. And that led to the Pandavas or uh, the Arjuna's family emerging victorious. But it was a, a pyrrhic victory because basically everything was destroyed. They had to start from, from, from scratch. And so the way in which Krishna exploited uh, the power elite at the time was to basically understand the kind of petty jealousies, biases, prejudices that exist with these elites. And he manipulated that. He, he knew that one faction couldn't stand the other faction. And that, and that they would basically, out of their kind of short-sightedness and greed, would deprive the other faction who, who had legitimate claims to kind of land and uh, a kingdom and so forth, would deny them any, everything that they could. And, and so Krishna exploited that to produce this cataclysmic war that actually ended that unjust civilization at the time. So it seems as though there's this kind of unraveling 
where the celestials, as in this case, Krishna basically would advise one particular faction to act in ways there whereby you could, where there would be an, an unraveling of a corrupt, uh, unjust civilization. And so that's a very important concept. Um, so in both the Book of Enoch and the Mahabharata, the celestials are depicted as directly intervening in ways that lead to the unraveling of these corrupt civilizations, where technological development has taken place and has grown to the level where any kind of spiritual consciousness, elevated consciousness, cosmic consciousness, unity consciousness, all of these things uh, that are a sign of being able to utilize all of one's inherent physical abilities are kind of downplayed. Um, they're not valued. So it's, it's important to understand that you know, when we look at our contemporary civilization and say, well, you know, we live in a very materialistic world where technology trumps consciousness, that this is something that has existed in the past, that, that in a way that we're just following an old pattern that we're repeating. And, and these celestials unravel the um, corrupt civilization that has been uh, created by the, by the power elite. So that's kind of like background. That's just to give, set the scene for what I'm going to talk about uh, for the rest of uh, this uh, session. And, and that is, where are we now? when it comes to contact with extraterrestrial life. It's been happening. It's been happening for at least 60 years where there's been this ongoing contact between extraterrestrials and governments without the people being informed about it. What are governments doing? The governments that are informed, that are in the loop. How did they manage this? How did they deal with this? How did they have contact with advanced extraterrestrial civilizations and keep it from the mass of the people? keep it even from elected political officials who are supposed to represent the people. How did they do this? What I'm going to do now is talk a little bit about the contemporary situation concerning extraterrestrial life and how it's been secretly managed. And then bring it all back to this larger question of what are the celestials doing? What is happening with these advanced beings that don't use technology? And are watching and observing and want to help us evolve. So I'm going to go now into what is actually happening on the kind of exopolitical front. So Angelica mentioned what happened uh, when I had an article in the Washington Post published concerning President Eisenhower when he had a meeting with a delegation of extraterrestrials in, in 1954. Actually, there were two meetings that we know definitely happened with Eisenhower where there have been whistleblowers people who worked in the military at the time who have come forward and said this is what happened, this is what they saw. And the picture that emerges is that in February of 1954 and in February of 1955, President Eisenhower traveled first to Edwards Air Force Base and then to Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico to meet with delegations of different extraterrestrials. The first meeting in 1954 didn't go so well. That happened nine days before the, um, the Bravo test, the, very, the, the, very, the largest hydrogen bomb test ever in the United, in the United States, also involving the United States. 15 megatons. Well, just to give you an idea, what, what is 15 megatons? That is um, 1,000 times the size of the bombs that were dropped in Japan. And I'll show you a, a graph of that um, a little bit later. 
So basically, this meeting happened shortly before President Eisenhower's approved the, uh, went ahead with this detonation of a hydrogen bomb. And then after that hydrogen bomb went off, uh, another meeting occurred uh, approximately 11 months later with a, a different group of extraterrestrials. And this led to agreements to share technology in exchange for certain rights that would be given to the extraterrestrials. What, what preceded this set of meetings and agreements involving President Eisenhower was that under the Roosevelt and Truman administrations, extraterrestrial technologies had been discovered, but they weren't understood by the scientists at the time. And there are a number of documents that, that show this, actually. Uh, um, the, uh, the advisor, the science advisor to President Roosevelt and, and Truman later, uh, Vannevar Bush, basically wrote a memo saying, we've got this advanced stuff, what shall we do with it? Shall we try to understand it and use it for the war? This was happening during the Second World War. And, and, and Roosevelt said, no, put all our energies into the war. We need to win this war. And then afterwards, we can begin to understand this stuff. So it was like quite clear that those documents show that the American government and other governments around the world got their hands on these advanced technologies through various ways, but they couldn't understand them. They were just too advanced. And so uh, they, they needed time to be able to um, develop their science to the level where these extraterrestrial technologies could be uh, used and developed. Well, the result of these secret meetings, approximately 10 years later, 10 years after the war, after these technologies first became known to the US government, uh, you have a number of meetings and agreements being reached. Obviously, these agreements were very useful for the American government making these uh, decisions because it meant that uh, you now had helpers. You now had these extraterrestrials who could help you understand these technologies and reverse engineer them and use them. So these were very highly, uh, highly classified programs that were, um, were set in place. Um, and they came from various ways that they had uh, uh, um, achieved or found these technologies, crash retrievals, one, one example there, just finding uh, crashed uh, vehicles, different parts of the world or the United States. Now these were highly compartmentalized and they were classified need to know, which basically meant that only those people who had a clear need to know about these programs were given access. And so to begin with, that wasn't such a big deal because like the American military and the American government knew about this and it was like, you know, you had your four-star generals, four-star admirals, all in the loop. They knew what was going on. It was like they were relocating the stuff, finding it, and they understood. You needed to have this stuff reverse engineered and, and have a decision-making process and policy-making process set up so that this technology could be used in ways that would enhance the national security of the United States. That's, that was their thinking. I, mean, I don't agree with it. I mean, I'm sure many of us here would say, well, isn't there a higher interest sharing this profound knowledge with the rest of humanity, uh, transform the world and take us to a new place. Well, I, I think everyone here would think that way, but you know, we haven't spent 30 years in the Pentagon kind of like earning our different stripes and eventually becoming a four-star general or admiral. You know, those who follow that particular track, they think in a different way. For them, it's national security. Forget about you know, human interests and global society. I mean, that's kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff. 
And that's how they think, national security. So developing these secret programs, keeping them highly classified, need to know where only you, you know, the generals and the national security advisors to the president, the executive branch of the government, only you guys knew what was going on. So what happened? Well, a lot of very clever people involved in all of this and they understood the potential for those who were able to gain control of this technology. First thing that began to happen was that the president began to lose authority. The president of the United States began to lose control over this level of technology. Um, in 1953, President Eisenhower placed reform of the government system under the hands of Nelson Rockefeller, who chaired the Advisory Committee on Government Organization that lasted through from 1953 to 58, and was also Eisenhower's special assistant for foreign affairs. And so that's Nelson Rockefeller there, that's uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, naturally, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, the oldest son of the, of the famous Rockefeller family, probably the most powerful industrial family in the United States. What did Rockefeller do? He's in charge of government reform, tremendous, tremendous authority that he exercised. Eisenhower was really beholden to these industrialists. He was a Republican. The, industri the, the, uh, the industrialists, the corporations, really backed his presidential campaign and, and really made it... Uh, uh, made him feel obliged to them. And, and certainly he did appoint people to prominent positions that kind of effectively showed that you know, he was really promoting their interests in many ways. So Rockefeller did two things that had a major impact on extraterrestrial affairs. Uh, first, he began the process of privatizing classified extraterrestrial technology programs by involving corporations as military contractors. Basically, need to know access while we need to get corporations involved because they can keep secrets better than government, better than the military. We'll get them involved. And we'll dole out all of these contracts concerning extraterrestrial technology to the corporations to understand. So they're not going to be done in the government laboratories because there are too many leaks, you know, too many people talk in government. But corporations, boy, they can keep a secret. And the second thing that Rockefeller did was that he uh, made it possible for direct presidential executive authority over classified extraterrestrial-related programs uh, to basically disappear. Placed authority under the hands of an appointed committee call, uh, called the Majestic 12. That was what, what it was called back then, uh, back in the 1940s up until the 60s. Uh, after the 60s, it changed, it changed names. And I'll explain a little bit about that. Uh, but basically, the president of the United States is now out of the loop. He doesn't know what's going on in these extraterrestrial programs. Eisenhower was, a, was betrayed. He knew it. And so what does he do? He, you know, he feels, feels betrayed and he was a very patriotic American, military man, and he was messed around by these, uh, by these corporations. So he did what he thought was the most um, powerful thing he could do to alert the American public. And, he, and, and in his farewell speech, the thing that w was the last speech he gave as the uh, President of the United States, he warned about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. This is what he said, quote, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial congressional complex. Many of you probably don't know that, but in his original draft, he had military-industrial congressional complex. 
Susan Eisenhower, um, uh, Eisenhower's um, uh, daughter, actually later said that that was the original phrase that he used, the military-industrial-congressional complex. But Eisenhower felt that if he named the Congress as, as part of this kind of uh, set of interests that were threatening American liberties, that he would, he would create too many enemies and that would actually diminish the, the, the office of the president. So he took it out. So he continued, the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. So that was January 17, 1961. Now, what did he mean? What did he mean by saying that we have to guard against the dangers of the military-industrial complex and the threat it poses to our civil liberties? And right, what, what does he mean by that? Is he talking about um, Lockheed and um, um, Boeing and General Dynamics and all of these corporations basically building fighter jets and advanced um, ships for the Navy and for the Air Force. Is that what he's talking about? Watch out for these guys because they'll make us build you know, more, more airplanes than we need and make us build more advanced aircraft carriers than we need. Is that really what he was talking about? I don't think so. Someone actually did clarify what Eisenhower did mean. And he said, quote, when he said the main thing we have to fear is, is for the military-industrial complex, he wasn't kidding. And he had the UFO subject matter we are talking about in mind. He was quite explicit about that, end quote. That's Stephen Lovkin, who worked as a uh, sergeant in the US Army Signal Corps in the Eisenhower administration. This is, this is a man who had direct personal contact with President Eisenhower. And because he was Army, Eisenhower apparently confided in him um, and told him that, yeah, these, the people who are running this, this, this show ETs, UFOs, I don't trust them. I've lost power. I've lost authority. Eisenhower was pretty upset about that. So he warned about that in his farewell speech. So what does Eisenhower do next? Okay, this is what really kind of set things in motion. He warned Kennedy. President Kennedy, 1961, begins office in January. Eisenhower meets with the president-elect, latter part of 1960, um, and in January of 1961. He meets with Kennedy. Do you think Eisenhower is just going to talk to Kennedy and say, well, you know, here are the keys, and this is the desk where Lincoln sat, and you know, this is the bed where you, know, uh, you had Washington. Uh, and he's not going to talk about those things. I mean, he's giving a farewell speech warning about the, power, the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Don't you think he's going to tell Kennedy, the incoming president? I mean, if this was something you're going to tell the American people openly, on television, don't you think you're going to tell the incoming president, maybe tell him a little bit more what you really meant by military-industrial complex? I think he told Kennedy. He told Kennedy a lot. He told Kennedy exactly what was going on. He warned Kennedy over the UFO ET issue, basically told him it's being taken out of the hands of the president and it was being mishandled. And he said, you've got to get control back. So that's Kennedy and Eisenhower. So what does Kennedy do? Kennedy begins to try to regain presidential authority over UFO files and the ET subject. First phase concerns executive actions Kennedy took in 61 to gain control over psychological warfare operations. 
It's a kind of technical term, psychological warfare, but it was basically that was the term that was used as the rubric for managing the extraterrestrial phenomenon. Because it's like, you have a lot of people seeing UFOs, a lot of people saying, oh, I was taken up in a ship and I met this gorgeous Pleiadian woman, she changed my life, and so forth and so forth. And it's like, okay, a lot of these stories. Um, what do you do with it? Well, it becomes part of psychological warfare. You've got to convince the American public, oh, this is bogus. These are people dreaming it up, charlatans, frauds, and you create a magazine, the National Enquirer, to discredit the whole field, make it look like a kind of charade. And that's what they did, psychological warfare. And Kennedy knew that this was how the ET issue was being handled um, at, at, at the first tier. It was basically, it was all uh, handled under the rubric of psychological warfare. And that these, these, these psychological warfare operations, which was the rubric for kind of all covert operations being handled um, in the uh, executive branch, the national security arena, that this was controlled by a group called Majestic 12. So Kennedy writes a memo to the director of the Central Intelligence at the time, Alan Dulles, and says, I want to know what Majestic 12 is doing in relationship to psychological warfare. Basically, Dulles was like, oh, well, this, this guy wants to know about what we're doing. We can't tell him. He doesn't have need to know. He's only the president. So this led to a conflict with, uh, with Dulles, who was the outgoing uh, CIA director. And he was also the head of MJ-12. Documents have emerged that said Dulles was MJ-1. He was, the, he was the chairman of the Majestic 12 group at that time. And that they opposed granting Kennedy access and saw him as a threat to the continuation of Majestic 12. So, the second phase. Uh, after the uh, Dulles, as the CIA director, denied Kennedy access to these uh, UFO, these classified UFO files, Kennedy begins his second phase. And that concerns uh, actions he took as commander-in-chief. Okay, so you think about it. The director of central intelligence says, we're not going to tell you. What do you do next? You're the president. Well, I'm commander-in-chief. I can go to any military base in the United States, around the world. I can go in there and I can tell the, the base commander, I want to go in that hangar, I want to go in that building, I want to see that facility, and I want to know what's going on in there. And that's what Kennedy did. So he went around and he basically found out where some of the secrets were, you know, where some of the secrets were buried, uh, where, the, where the craft... Where the, where the retrieved uh, UFO craft, extraterrestrial vehicles, were taken. And so he saw extraterrestrial artifacts traveling to US Air Force bases. And he, he even meets with civilians who had knowledge about UFOs and extraterrestrial life. He even meets some of these guys that were saying that I was taken up on board this ship and met these gorgeous Pleiadians or Venusians. And he meets with these people and, find, and they tell him what happened to them. So he's doing this. And the third phase, was, and this was the one that actually eventually really crossed, the, crossed that red line where these competing factions uh, took action to remove Kennedy from the scene. The third phase began September 20, 1963, when Kennedy embarked on a really high-risk political strategy of getting NASA to cooperate with the Soviet Union on joint space and lunar missions. Basically, no one wanted it. Congress didn't want it. NASA didn't want it. Uh, the national security people in the United States uh, in the, uh, didn't want it. Uh, the Russians didn't want it. Khrushchev didn't want it either. 
I mean, he didn't want. So why is Kennedy doing this? Why is he going out on a limb saying, we want to work with the Russians in getting joint missions into space and the moon going? In September of 1963, many of you may not have even heard this, there was a famous speech he gave at the United Nations saying that this was what needed to be done. There was a strategy behind this. Kennedy wanted to do this because he knew that by cooperating with the Soviet Union, that there would be a joint sharing of files, classified files concerning all sorts of things, one of those being UFOs. And that he knew that this joint cooperation with the Soviet Union would eventually lead to different government agencies in the United States having access to this, to this information. So it would be the, the State Department, the Department of Energy, um, the various branches of the US military, that there would be greater access, and NASA as well, greater access to UFOs, classified files. And this basically meant that the kind of system that had developed under Eisenhower, where corporations got more and more control, was going to, was going to be blown apart. Because it meant that, well, now it wasn't just going to be corporations that was going to be having more and more control. It was going to be NASA, and the State Department, and the Department of Energy, the Navy, and all these guys are going to want to know, well, what's going on here? You know, what, what program is this? And so this was not something that they were going to allow. And that's what MJ12 did. They did not allow uh, that, that project to go forward. So, uh, and there's a lot of information I can give you about this. And I actually have a DVD there at the back where at the crash retrieval conference in Las Vegas um, late last year in, uh, in August, uh, sorry, October, I actually gave a one-hour presentation on the Kennedy assassination uh, and going into detail into these three phases and the, the documents involved, the key people involved. The, base, the bottom line was that Kennedy was assassinated because he was wanting to have these classified files shared amongst the American bureaucracy, uh, US bureaucracy. And this was something that was not allowed through the CIA in particular, CIA counterintelligence. Because if you want to keep a secret, you don't share it with a bureaucracy. You don't share it with the State Department or the Department of Energy or, or the US Navy or the uh, CIA. You don't share it with the CIA because there's a lot of good people working in the CIA. You confine it to a particular branch. And that's what they did. It was CIA counterintelligence that actually had control of classified UFO files. Because CIA counterintelligence uh, is that branch of the CIA that spies on the CIA. That's, that's their job. They're, there, they're the mole hunters. They're to find out, are you a loyal CIA officer? I mean, you're talking about things that we think are kind of highly suspicious. And it's like they have this authority where they can go out there and they can kind of like um, root out, flush out, or challenge anyone, whether it's the CIA or any other organization or bureaucracy, that they suspect of being uh, a Soviet spy. So they had great power, and we're better to hide the secrets than in this really mysterious group, CIA counterintelligence, run by this really nebulous man called James Jesus Angleton, who uh, uh, had all this authority. And, and I think there's a kind of lo a lot of um, uh, sacred, uh, well, put it this way, uh, the Illuminati tradition. I mean, there's an element here. But if you think about it, who better than to actually take out an, uh, a direct, a president, uh, to take out a directive to assassinate a presidential, to, to assassinate a president than someone whose middle name is Jesus. Right? So the Kennedy assassination was a covert coup 
by the MJ-12 that through CSA, CIA counterintelligence had the means to deny any presidential administration access. 1960s, MJ-12 becomes internationalized with greater corporate involvement and control over classified UFO files. The role of the US military now begins to significantly diminish as privatization was developed even further in managing ET affairs. So first the president gets taken out of the loop. Then it's the US military that gets taken out of the loop. Um, in response to questions from a UFO investigator, Bill, uh, William McDonald, Ben Rich, who was the uh, CEO of Lockheed's uh, Skunk Works, said, quote, there are two types there are two types of UFOs. The ones we build, uh, ones they build. We learn from both crash retrievals and actual hand-me-downs. The hand-me-downs, they're the ones that are part of the agreements. The government knew and until 1969 took an active hand in the administration of that information. After 1969 Nixon purge, administration was handled by an international board of directors in the private sector. So Ben Rich is basically saying that, yeah, it's the private sector that now handles all of this advanced ET UFO information. The US military is out of the loop, which is pretty embarrassing. You know, you think about it. You're US, you know, you're part of the US military. You spent 30 years rising through the ranks. You're, you're in charge of national security, and you get asked all these questions about UFOs, flying saucers, by all these different groups. And it's kind of embarrassing to say, well, we don't know what's going on because we used to know, but they took authority from us. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, that's what happened. It's, the military is out of the loop. Former astronaut Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Ed Mitchell confirmed that an incident in 1997 where the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff was supplied the code names of UFO technology related projects, but was denied need to know access. So here's the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying, I want to know about this, this project. I hear it's about UFOs and extraterrestrial technology. Tell me about it. I'm chief of, head, head of intelligence, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Don't have need to know. Sorry. This was first reported um, uh, by Dr. Stephen Greer, who revealed that in 2001 that Admiral Wilson was the person who was in charge of, uh, of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff when this incident uh, occurred in 1997. And in... Uh, July 4th, 2008, Independence Day, 2008, Dr. Edgar Mitchell confirmed Greer's version of events publicly on CNN. And he said that when Admiral Wilson, quote, had found the people responsible for the cover-up and for the people who were in the know and were told, I'm sorry, Admiral, you do not have need to know here, and so goodbye, and, end quote. So basically, Here's an admiral, head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, being denied access. So not only is the president denied access, and all of Congress and um, political appointed or elected, elected uh, representatives, government representatives denied access, but also the, the military now, the, the heads of intelligence in the military denied access. Okay, so what's happening now within these ET projects that are run by privatized international entities. Well, I'll run through this pretty quickly because I've probably only got about 20 minutes. Uh, what we have here is reverse engineering of advanced extraterrestrial technologies that are developed for the exclusive benefit of private interest groups. 
biological experiments on unwilling human extraterrestrial subjects in underground bases. Pretty horrific stuff, but you know, this is what's going on. I mean, it's, there's a lot validating this. Creating bioengineered super soldiers and clones for advanced war against ET civilizations. Advanced biological warfare and pandemic viruses to control the human population. And there's a lot more. That's just scratching the surface. This is all out of, this is being run by international entities that operate through corporations without government and military having a direct say or any oversight over any of this. Everything has been relocated into the corporate sector. So, where does this take us in terms of what I discussed earlier? Well, there are parallels between the ancient and modern misuse of technology. Earlier on I described the Book of Enoch and how advanced technology was given by extraterrestrials and was misused by the power elite. The modern era, as a, loss, as a direct result of a loss of presidential and regular government military control over ET projects, there's also this misuse of technology that is occurring and it's by a power elite, kind of similar to what I described earlier with the, uh, the Book of Enoch or the uh, Mahabharata and, and the Sumerian world. You have this, these examples of technology being misused by the power elite at the time. And we know what happened then. So how, how are celestials intervening in the modern era to restore a balance between advanced technology and higher consciousness? One, inform policymakers about world events and give warnings over development of destructive technologies. Two, raise consciousness of private individuals and any that are receptive to the ideals of unity, love, and peace. Thank you. Yeah, you remind me there's a, this is not the same as what's up there. Uh, directly intervene to prevent catastrophic events and or external manipulation. Facilitate an unraveling whereby their own corruption, that is the power leap, allows them to be manipulated by celestials and their allies that leads to an implosion. So these are four ways in which um, ex-celestials have been intervening. I'm kind of going to go through this fairly quickly. First, the contactees. They describe reports of how celestials have been intervening in the modern area to encourage policymakers to abandon nuclear weapons and destructive policies. One contactee who saw this was, uh, who experienced this was George Adamski. Um, and he was the guy that first was known for photographing these motherships with uh, uh, scout craft coming out of them in the nine, early 1950s. 1952, Adamski has um, his famous desert landing meeting with an extraterrestrial. This is with Orthon, uh, who uh, gives Adamski a warning about um, nuclear weapons uh, being developed. And then in 1953, Adamski describes himself being taken into one of the ET ships and that there were human extraterrestrial, human looking extraterrestrials in there. Well, the thing that kind of interests me and is pertinent to this, uh, this presentation is that he describes sitting at a table with an extraterrestrial on board that was one of their masters of wisdom, a celestial. And so this is what Adamski said. Now, as we sat around the table, all eyes turned to the older spaceman as he began to speak. Although it was only later that, that his stature on all the planets was explained to me, it was impossible not to realize that I was in the presence of a greatly evolved being and the attitude of all present clearly indicated 
that they, as well as I, felt very humble before him. I learned that his age in his present body was close to 1,000 years. Okay, so this is someone who really does have uh, some really advanced knowledge that the extraterrestrials themselves recognize as making him distinct to themselves. And this is what he, this is what this master of wisdom said, quote, our main purpose in coming to you at this stage is to warn you of the grave danger which threatens men of earth today. Knowing more than any amongst you yet realize, we feel it our duty to enlighten you if we can. Your people may accept the knowledge we hope to give them through you and through others, or they can turn deaf ears and destroy themselves. The choices with the earth's inhabitants, we cannot dictate. Kind of very similar to what Klaatu told, uh, said in the movie um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, but basically here you have a depiction, there's a diagram here, of just how destructive hydrogen bombs are. I mean that's the Russian bomb, uh, 60 megatons. This is the Bravo bomb, I mentioned that, 15 megatons. And down here, this tiny little circle is uh, Hiroshima and Trinity. One, these are 1,000, uh, an order of 1,000 less uh, destructive. That gives you an idea of just how de destructive this technology is. Um, this is where it gets interesting with Adamski. Adamski says he confidentially visited Kennedy twice in 1961 and 62 and passed on the communications from his extraterrestrials to Kennedy. And there were warnings about Cuba and other information he passed on to Kennedy. Um, and I won't go into the details about why we should accept Adamski as someone who actually had information that we can kind of really accept as possible. But uh, certainly uh, this is someone who was saying that he was meeting Kennedy, introducing Kennedy to extraterrestrial information, and that Kennedy was interested in listening. And we know that this was something that Kennedy was very interested in at the time. Um, celestials and consciousness raising. Well, en Enrique Rincon is a uh, Colombian contactee, and he was taken to meet with, with another group of contactees, 24 contactees, to a remote location in the Andes. And he described how he and the others were given special ambassadorial training to prepare, to prepare humanity for the truth of extraterrestrial life. At the end of the training, he describes how a group of contactees and a number of the extraterrestrials were taken to meet with a master of wisdom or a celestial. And so this is what he describes as happening. Quote, the instructor, an extraterrestrial, approached the entrance to a tunnel carved in the living rock and clasped his hands twice. He retired to one side and the most incredible being made his appearance. We were astonished beyond description. That being looked exactly like Jesus the Master. I thought immediately that the Pleiadians had brought us here with the purpose of meeting Jesus Christ, who was here again fulfilling the prophecies. Then this Master of Wisdom dispelled Rincon's belief that he was Jesus. And he said, I am not who you believe I am. My name is a thousand names. Give me any and that I am. I am ancient before you, not in age, but in knowledge. My name is age, for I am the age and the time. I am wisdom. My name is wisdom. I hold 35% of universal wisdom. So here's a being that I mentioned earlier actually was able to actuate or activate 35% of his inherent abilities. So this is a being that was incredibly advanced that the Pleiadian extraterrestrials that Rincon was having contacts with who had this really advanced technology 
for deferring to this being as one of these masters of wisdom. Three, in, in addition to warnings and consciousness raising, some celestials directly intervene. And here's a really fascinating case of someone called Anastasia. I'm sure many of you are familiar with her, her books. Um, she's a female Siberian recluse, uh, kind of what Dennis Adams was talking about. I mean, maybe he spent eight years in the forest. Well, uh, Anastasia was born and raised there and has been there all, all her life. And she has these remarkable abilities that Dennis was talking about and was uh, said that he was able to demonstrate and, and teach to some. Well, apparently Anastasia does have these abilities and, and a little more based on what um, has been written about her. So she, she teaches you know, the advantages of a rudimentary uh, lifestyle and getting in touch. And I think Dennis talked about that. So probably better to just say, Dennis covered that last night in the, in the banquet. And, um, I can just kind of move on to the next slide to save a little bit of time. Vladimir Meger, the, the Russian uh, entrepreneur that introduced Anastasia to the world, uh, he described what happened when he had an encounter with Anastasia with extraterrestrials. He describes an incident where Anastasia physically traveled to another world to persuade extraterrestrials that Earth was not worth taking over. The incident began as a remote viewing session where both Anastasia and Vladimir observed extraterrestrials planning to covertly take over the Earth by first distributing advanced technologies. Very clever. You're not going to physically invade. You basically come bearing gifts. You know, uh, This is the way you take over things. You bear gifts, and those gifts make, you behold, make the recipient beholden to you. And this is what Anastasia apparently was warning against. This is what she said. Uh, quote, the extraterrestrial visitors offer to share their technology in providing each citizen of the country with nutrient mixture and rapid construction of housing for everyone. In the apartments provided you, everything you need will react only to your voice commands, identified by tones inherent in your voice. The computers in your apartments will scan your eyes, breath, and other parameters to determine your physical health and prescribe the corresponding food mixture composition. Well, you know, you can imagine what this entrepreneur, this Russian entrepreneur would, would say to that. It's like, fantastic. Wow, this is great. We could solve all humanity's problems. We could put out all this advanced technology and people would be free and we, and entrepreneurs would do really well as, as well. That would be great, wouldn't it? Well, not according to Anastasia. In responding to Megara's belief that advanced technology would be a boon to humanity, this is how she replied. Quote, all people on the earth will be compelled to render daily service to those devices which outwardly serve them. All mankind will fall into a trap, surrendering their own freedom and that of their children for the sake of an artificial technological perfection. So she was recognizing these dangers posed by technology being disseminated when humanity has not reached a certain level of consciousness development, that our collective consciousness has not yet reached that point where we could absorb these technologies without being corrupted or without it crippling us in a way where we might in the future implode or basically become um, uh, a slave species. So this is something that she was warning against. So this is what she does. Anastasia responds to Megara's request to physically travel to the planet to put a stop to their plans. He writes, and he's seeing this remote viewing, because apparently Anastasia did something so that he could remote view, continue to remote view 
these extraterrestrials on their world while they're planning this kind of Trojan horse uh, uh, strategy of taking over the Earth through offering advanced technology as a gift, she, she intervenes. And this is what he sees. Quote, And all at once in front of me I saw Anastasia in the flesh. Then all at once started walking unhurriedly over to the aliens. They caught sight of her. Suddenly, as if on command, they all rose and grasped hold of the medallions around their necks. All the medallions flashed with rays of light, all directed at the approaching figure of Anastasia. She, she stopped, lost her balance momentarily, took a small step backward, then stopped again. Giving a little stamp with her bare foot, she slowly and confidently moved forward again. The rays coming from the aliens' medallions got, bigger, got brighter and brighter, as they joined together concentrating on Anastasia. It looked as though it would take but a moment for them to reduce all the clothing on her to ashes. All at once, she stretched her hands out in front of her. Some of the rays reflected off the palms of her hands and were extinguished. Then the others started to go out." End quote. So that's basically giving you an idea of the power of, of an evolved human who is using their fullest potential, whether it's 20, 35, 40%, whatever it is, we have this power that when we tap into it as humans, that we can do things such as displayed here, where these advanced extraterrestrials with their technologies can't do a thing to us, that their technology has no limitations. And this is confirmed by whistleblowers. Uh, some of the remote viewers uh, that, uh, that the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency and the other alphabet agencies employed uh, to spy on extraterrestrials. One of them was Ingo Swan, another one was Pat Price. They were part of the Project Stargate um, that the CIA started up in 1972-75. What do you think Ingo Swan said that the extraterrestrials most fear? He said they laugh at our technology. They truly laugh at the level of technology that humanity has. That's a joke to them. But he says what they fear is our psychic abilities. They are in awe of our psychic abilities. And, and Alex uh, Collier, yesterday he talked about uh, the Andromedans and, and how they regard us humans as having these incredible abilities. It's not only the Andromedans. Many different extraterrestrials recognize this incredible ability that we have. If we ever get our act together, we will be awesome. And the technologies that the extraterrestrials have, we will just jump right over that right over that as a species. Unraveling the power elite. Okay. As the collective consciousness rises, old strategies used by the power elite to manipulate humanity fail. Tens of millions of people around the, around the world know that 9-11 was a false flag operation. It's not a conspiracy theory to them. It's not a you know, conjecture. They know. It's just so evident, so much information has come out confirming that 9-11 is an inside job. That Tens of millions of people know about this. It's like the collective consciousness has risen. People now know about false flag operations. I mean, think about it. How many of you here know what a false flag operation is? We have quite a few. How many, say, 10 years ago, how many of you knew what a false flag operation was then? Yeah, it's the same, only a couple. Ten years ago, only a couple of us knew what a false flag operation was. We had no idea. Now we all know. We know that governments lie. We know that they 
pretend that it was a terrorist or some other government that did something and that they're trying to pin the blame so that they could then activate these policies. We know it. The military know it. The different government factions know it. There's a lot of good people working in the government and the military that are really upset with what's happened. The way power has been taken away from legitimate government and military authority and placed into the hands of these privatised international corporations run by, the, by these power elites. A lot of people are not happy about that and they're trying to make things happen. But the thing is that the consciousness is rising. We all know what a false flag operation is now and it makes it harder and harder for these false flag operations to continue to be created. And this is the way the power elite in the past has stayed in power, to create false flag operations, manipulating fear, manipulating ignorance, manipulating prejudice. Now we're waking up. We know, it's not, we know it's not a bunch of Arab terrorists out here to kind of destroy the American way of life. It's not. We know it was Dick Cheney running some false flag operation in the White House Operations Center. It's just so clear that this is what it was. 9-11 was run by Cheney and his, his crowd in cooperation with these international corporate entities. The evidence is there, and I, I can't go into it now, but it actually is in my book, and my, I do have copies of my book back there, and I'll talk about that a little bit uh, more at the end. So, some celestial, uh, summary. Celestials are here to help. Our historical texts talk about them wanting to help us, being here to help us, helping us align with universal will, and avoiding the inherent dangers posed by advanced technologies. They're emphasizing advanced consciousness over just becoming dependent on technology. We call these celestials, masters of wisdom, elders, ascended masters, a number of different terms. Conclusions. Currently, humanity is at the precipice of great changes. We know there's something really big is going to happen. 60 years of secret agreements. Technology agreements have been reached with advanced extraterrestrials, and these are being hidden from from the majority of the population. Advanced technologies have been developed secretly and are being used in ways that we would find horrendous if we really knew what was going on. I just mentioned a few of them. Um, in my book, you'll find a lot more information about what's going on in the secret bases. You'll find out about the false flag operations. You'll find out how uh, they manipulate the military in, in basically servi servicing these uh, various uh, classified programs, utilizing military personnel and keeping the military out of the loop. So it's quite clear in looking at the way these projects are being ma uh, managed that there is a great imbalance between technology and consciousness. So there is a great unraveling happening here. Celestials are committed to ensuring that humanity's technological progress Celestials are committed to ensuring that our technological process doesn't outstrip our ethical uh, development. Where this has happened in the past, there's been an unraveling, a collapse or an implosion of an entire civilization. It happened during the age of, of Vedic India. It happened uh, with Atlantis and even earlier, earlier civilizations went through this same trajectory that we're going through. That is one scenario, a collapse, an implosion. I think what we are witnessing now is a gradual evolution where we are being helped so that we don't implode as a civilization, that we will gradually evolve, well, rapidly evolve, but we are going to do it in a way where we don't collapse as a civilization. In the past, direct intervention has led to this 
unraveling of the power elite. And I think we're seeing it now. We're seeing the elites fighting amongst themselves. More of the information is now getting out, is being leaked by various sympathetic elite groups, whether it's in government, military, even in corporations. There's more that's being leaked by people who worked on these projects. Thank you. So the unraveling of the power elite arises from their own corruption being used against them, and that leads to factional conflict and accelerating their demise. So what lies ahead? And I really need to finish here. Uh, I've gone just over my time, so just another minute now to finish up. So what lies ahead? We are set to witness an unraveling and collapse of a millennia-old control system used to manipulate humanity through fear, ignorance, and prejudice. Many celestials are working directly with friendly extraterrestrial civilizations and increasing the number of individuals and, and increasing number of individuals to expose these corrupt elite practices. We're just becoming more aware. More of this information is coming out. We're being educated in an unprecedented way. They're raising consciousness through crop circles. I mean, Suzanne Taylor's uh, crop circle movie tonight, uh, this morning, sorry, that, that kind of showed us the magnificence of these things. And they're educating us. They're making us more aware of what's going on out there. There are these fleets of, of, of UFOs, extraterrestrial vehicles, appearing in, in major cities in South America. Mexico, hundreds. These are all UFOs. These are very large objects floating around the skies of Mexico City and, and other cities in South America. These UFOs are appearing in unprecedented rates around the planet. And here you have this, the, you know, while Obama is receiving the Nobel Peace Prize for opposing nuclear weapons development, here you have something that was created by, extra, by, by extraterrestrials, uh, this enormous spiral. And on the same day, this spiral is created, you have this triangular, or this pyramid craft appearing over the Kremlin, one mile wide, appearing over the Kremlin. It's getting really obvious now. We're being educated, the extraterrestrials are appearing, and it's like there's an unraveling. The elite are fighting amongst themselves. Their ability to control information and people is evaporating. And we don't have much, much more time. This is something that is imminent. So that's it. I, I think that what we have now, are these beings helping us? And these celestials are here to help us, and, there's, and they're all over the place. So thank you all, and there's a really positive future ahead of us. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.